Today is Friday, July 19th, 2019. Time for episode 88 of the Barnhart Podcast. Well, actually, we don't know if this is a regular scheduled podcast right now, if it's going to be a in-the-can episode or go out on regular schedule. We're supposed to have a, uh, a special recording tomorrow. Well, I don't know if it's special, but a, a recording, a guest um Somebody, somebody's taking my spot. I'm supposed to be recording something tomorrow. So if that actually works and uh, it, it goes into the stream, I have no idea when this is going to come out. So it's a combination of Ask Ann, Super Nerd Feels Like Talking About This Topic, and a topic that uh, you blogged about and got a lot of feedback. But first, I want to bring up something, uh, some feedback you you uh, forwarded over to me tonight. Uh, you just blogged about uh, 50 years ago today. Apollo mm-hmm. 11 was was uh, descending to the lunar surface, but uh, at the same time, uh, Mary Jo Kopechny was was uh, gasping and dying because um, uh, Ted Kennedy drowned her, and got got a a reply saying, "No, Apollo 11 did not approach the final lunar orbit 50 years ago today. No human has ever traveled beyond low Earth orbit." I'm sure there's a big explanation in here about the Van Allen belt. Um, is it actually? a lot of people who, who uh, question the lunar landing. And I actually know some people who are in aviation who say that the, the Van Allen belt and the radiation um, fields that are out there are actually too, too, too uh, intense for even uh, interstellar probes to go through. So I, I don't, I've, I've never been up there, so I don't know. Is this complete lunacy or is there something to this? But uh, actually NASA knew that and figured it out and dealt with it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, for all of this stuff, all of this, we didn't go to the moon, we didn't do a flat eartherism, all, all this stuff. That this, Again, this is one good thing about the internet. One good thing about YouTube is that there are people who are posting rebuttals and scientists and so on and so forth who are posting rebuttals to all of this. Now, I have to admit, we didn't discuss this. And so I would have to go back and and re uh, read or rewatched an explanation or rebuttal about why it is that the Van Allen radiation belt was not a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that, that, and the, the, the remark that I sent to super nerd when I forwarded this email that came in was, I don't know how long it took from the time that I, that post went up. I don't know. It was probably three hours or something like that. And here comes, here comes the emails with, we didn't go to the moon. And, and of course, what was the rest of the email? The rest of the email was 9-11, this, that, and the other, of course. And then I'd have to look at it. I don't know if he started ranting and raving explicitly about the J-O-O-Z, but, um, you know, it's all the same. It's all the same crap. Um, But yeah, I've I've been as many people have been watching. There's some really good new uh, documentaries and um, edits and and releases of the um, the the lunar landing. You know, with commentary, hearing hearing Mission Control in Houston, their internal conversations with. Um, Armstrong and Aldrin's, you know, transmissions, so on and so forth. And I saw a really, really good quote from Armstrong. Um, Someone asked him, and he's dead. I think he died not too terribly long ago. And someone had asked Neil Armstrong, "Does, does any of this bother you? Because Buzz Aldrin punched some guy in the face. Some guy came up and got into Buzz Aldrin's grill and it's, I think this has been within like the last 10 years. So Buzz Aldrin was an old man. And one of these nutters came up and got in Buzz Aldrin's grill and started, you know, having a spittle fleck nutty 
in in his face that you didn't go and you're a liar and this and Buzz Aldrin cold cocked the guy and just dropped him and it was it was it was very macho, um, and you know I can I can see how Buzz Aldrin would <laughs> become become passionately. Um, passionately angry about something like that because you're not just you're not just accusing him of being one of the biggest liars in human history you're accusing all of those people that he worked with all of them hundreds hundreds of thousands of people would have to be some of the most absolutely nefarious liars in human history in order for any of that, for that, you know, we didn't actually go. Furthermore, the another point that I saw that that really fascinates me is someone just brought up the point: if it was all fake, the Soviets would have known it was fake. And why in the hell didn't they call it? Why didn't the Soviets come out and just say, "Sure, we've got we've got monitoring capability. We we can we can see all this crap going on." Um, you know, the earth is rotating, the earth is spinning, we're in full view of the moon half of the day. Um, if, if it was all fake and they didn't go, why didn't the Soviets call it immediately? But the best, the best quote, I think, was from Neil Armstrong. And Neil Armstrong's quote from within the last 10 years or so, somebody asked him about this and said, does it, does it, bother you that these people are saying this, that you didn't go? And he says, no, it absolutely doesn't bother me at all, because I know for an absolute certitude that at some point, human beings will go back and some human beings will walk up to the base of the lunar lander and the camera that I left there, and they'll pick it up and they'll bring it back to Earth. And I know that. And I thought that was a really good answer. You know, it's like, no, don't worry about it at all. Um, yeah, they left so, some very expensive cameras up there on the moon. Uh, in fact, I, I was just listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about the video technology. How did they get the the video signal down to down to Earth and broadcast it? And there were contingencies for whether or not it could be done live and, and what the tape delay was going to look like. And there have been some conspiracy theories about... Um, you know, the, the tapes going, going missing of the original landing and somebody had recordings that was broadcast. I don't know how they did that exactly. Well, 69, it wouldn't have been kinescope. Kinescopes were when you would have a camera literally set up in front of a very large TV screen and you would take an incredibly high quality for the time, um, camera film recording of a television screen. And that's why you see, you can, if you get on YouTube and you look up some of the old television shows, like, I don't know if it's like the Honeymooners or or even some of the more obscure television shows from the 50s, like some of the early Westerns and stuff. And you look at it and you can just kind of tell by the quality of the image that you're looking at. And it's not anything to do with YouTube. It's intrinsic to the image itself. Once you realize what it is, that it's a that it's a camera positioned in front of a large television screen, you say, okay, that makes sense. That's why this picture looks awful. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that that uh, people had said that there was a lighting fluctuation that, that didn't make sense, like they were filming this on a soundstage. I mean, Stanley Kubrick has a big ego. If, if he really pulled off the... The video he would have said something about it 
But the way that the technology of the cameras work, it was a 10 frame per second slow scan that came down from space. Mm-hmm. And then that was received at one of three different locations. But for the U.S. broadcast audience, that was that 10, 10 frame per second video was displayed. And then a broadcast camera was taking photo or taking a, a live um Imagine if you you had like a eight millimeter tape or sixteen millimeter, you know, the, the old reel to reel videos, and somebody's projecting that on a screen and then taking a, a broadcast camera and then just focusing on the screen. That's exactly how they did the uh, the conversion from ten, ten frames a second to twenty nine point nine two or whatever yeah. the NTSC standard is. So yeah, some knucklehead opened the door and it kind of threw the, the lighting off for a second. And yeah. someone said, "Oh, they're on a stage." It's like no, they're just trying not to look like complete amateur hour getting this uh, out to the the U.S. viewing audience. And yeah. apparently, the whole reason why um, the the explanation from NASA why the original uh, tapes. It was like eight track, uh, or, or I don't know. I forget how, how many, how many tracks the Ampex tapes were or something like that. They, they had no idea how many, uh, missions they were going to do. And apparently they just degaussed the tapes and, and recorded over them after each mission. Now, part of me wants to say, yeah, but the first time you do some of this stuff, don't you want to set those aside and maybe send them to the library of Congress? I don't know. There, I mean, there, there are some legitimate questions to ask, but at the same time, maybe they didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal at the time. I don't know kind of hard to imagine they didn't think that but yeah but but I how mean, can how can they lose the tapes for something that momentous yeah exactly yeah that's that's a very good question um but don't ever forget it's also the government so <laughs> well and that's the other thing too i've i've given the this this line before it's actually adapted from an accusation that uh, some open source uh, activist level at microsoft the government is nowhere near as organized as it would have to be to be as evil as people That's think right. it is. Yeah. Yes, there are pockets of efficient uh, malefactors throughout the government, but not at NASA. I mean, th- these were the best German scientists we get, could get our hands on at the end of the war. They came over here and built the the Mercury program and, and Apollo and everything else. So it's it's not like they were going to... They were good at keeping secrets. I mean, the Germans are good at that. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the government, the rest of NASA, I mean, the media was embedded in this operation. They, they weren't going to keep this secret. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. And um, there's a really good piece that was linked on um, Vanderloon's website, American Digest, which I recommend with with reservation and, and a word of caution and discretion, because he does sometimes have things that are uh, not not the the cleanest and not for not for pious eyes but most of his content is pretty good and um one of the pieces that he's posted this week is he's all about he's all about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing is um apollo it's 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 a smithsonian article and it's apollo engineers discuss what it took to land on the moon and it's answering the question okay how could how could they possibly have done this with um you know your your baby television that you carry around your iphone contains more computing power than like the not just not just the 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 lunar lander not just the command module but like the entirety of nasa it's something just absolutely incredible like that and people are like how in the hell did did they were they able to do this get into orbit get to the moon land land on the moon i mean you watch the videos of the landing itself and it's just mind-blowing they're literally okay 
Armstrong is looking out a window with that has etched in the glass uh, gradient lines, and he's he's basically eyeballing the thing down at the end. But the, but there is a computer that's running this, and they it's really fascinating. You watch the the video, and what. This they keep getting this 1202 alarm and they don't know what it is. They've never seen it in the simulator. They've never seen it before. And a point, um, the Bill, the Bill Whittle um documentary, and we'll link all this in the show notes. The Bill Whittle documentary, he makes the point, okay, Neil Armstrong has, you know, been within you know, milliseconds of, of death numerous times as a test pilot. And the guy's completely unflappable. And when Whittle makes the point, you are about to hear Neil Armstrong get as close as Neil Armstrong is, is capable of getting to panic. And you hear Neil Armstrong say with decided tension and urgency in his voice, you need to tell me what the 1202 alarm means. And that's that's as close as, as I mean, this guy was just, I don't know. It, it, he might have had some sort of an uh, a just barely baby form of autism. He clearly did not experience emotions and fear the same way normal human beings do. This guy was to say he was cool cool as a cucumber just doesn't even come doesn't even come close. But so the question is how is it that they did this in the 1960s and we can't do it now with all of this computer crap that we have with all of this technology, you know, the the as technology is advancing in, in on a parabolic curve we can't, we couldn't do it. We can't get back right now. Because we just we use don't. All, we use all of our technology right now to, to run JavaScript and inefficient browsers as opposed to actually taking, you know, squeezing all the performance we can possibly get out of the computers they had available. You talk about NASA have not having collectively all the compute power in an iPhone. I think the computer on the uh, lunar lander was less powerful than what's in a TI uh, battery power or a solar power calculator. Calculator, yeah, yeah. Um, so the point this Smithsonian article makes, which is so, which is, you know, the light bulb goes off over your head. It's not so much a question of technology. It's a question of, of character and the culture. And there's four bell curves. So there's four, four criteria. And those are leadership, threat, economy, and talent. And all four of those bell curves in that 1950s and all through the 60s, that all lined up. You've got a bunch of talent. You've got a bunch of young, super smart guys. Um, you've got the people who came out of, you know, Nazi Germany and all that was a, they contributed massively to rocket science, literally. Um, you know, so Warner Von Braun and all those people. So you've got all of this talent. You've got the people who came in after World War II from Europe. Plus you have all of the, the young American guys. You've got a, an economy flushed with cash in, in that period, kind of in that post-war um, boom that they're in, po post-World War II boom that they're in. They're, and they're still feeling the the you know, the results of that. So you've got talent, you've got lots of money to spend, you've got a threat, you're in this, you're in this cold war with the Soviet Union. And, and you still had people of character as well. I've mentioned in at least two previous podcasts, the, uh, the Tom Wolf book, uh, The Right Stuff. And of course, mm -hmm. there was a movie made from it as well. 
and uh, the, you talk about the, the danger that these pilots face multiple times. Uh, the, the wives of the test pilots were more concerned of whether or not their husbands would come home when they were just doing normal test pilot stuff because they died frequently. These were machines that uh, were untested, unproven. They didn't have fly-by-wire controls and, and fancy wind tunnels like they have now to test everything to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just things went wrong with the machine and pilot goes up and doesn't come back alive. Whereas once they join the NASA program, they don't fly for very, you know, very much over the, the three years they're in the program. They've got almost no chance of dying because they're not flying. So in that respect, the, the wives are actually much less concerned about it. And in terms of Armstrong, you know, not getting panicked, maybe getting angry because on John Glenn's flight, um, the NASA was seeing warning alarms about something. They they thought that maybe the, uh, the heat shield had, had separated mm-hmm. or something was wrong and they never told him until yeah. just before re-entry and and uh, he was really ticked off about that it's like what do you think i am a baby up there tell me what's going on i'm a, I'm a combat seasoned marine tell me what the hell's going on so knowing that i could see where armstrong probably said well you lied to john glenn thinking he was gonna burn up on the on, on re-entry and wouldn't tell him that that uh, you thought that uh, some critical equipment is gone you probably know exactly what this alarm is just tell me what it is so yeah, he's probably actually yeah. I mean, he's he's <laughs> apparently for Neil Armstrong to have that timber in his voice was just you know sent sent shockwaves throughout everybody who was on the on the um, on the audio feed listening to this. It was oh shit, we need to figure this out, and they actually didn't know because it was it was a function. Um, it's it's a fascinating. Uh, we'll put this in the show notes too. It's an absolutely fascinating thing about. Um, because the computer had so little, um, memory capability and it could only do so much, it got to the point where for some reason, and when they were in real time, actually dealing with the true dynamics of lunar gravity and, and all of this, that it, the computer was overloading. And so what it would do is it would, it was programmed that every time it overloaded, it would reboot. But the, the thing of that is, is that it had so little um, memory and so little computing power that it only took like a fraction of a second for it to reboot. But every time it would do that, that 1202 alarm would go off. And that's, that's apparently what it was. And they just, they'd never seen it before in the simulator for whatever reason. So I'm it guessing was, it, I'm guessing they added that to all the future simulations. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because they said that the Apollo 11 landing was by far the uh most technologically shaky that the other four that they did were just smooth as silk compared to the first one um which was as as the the famous um I guess it's Gene Cernan says and he's the he's the Capcom guy he says when when Armstrong says the eagle has landed. The first thing out of his mouth is, you know, we understand you're down and thanks guys. You got a bunch of guys down here about ready to turn blue. And yeah, because it was, it was nerve wracking. It was absolutely nerve wracking. They were almost out of fuel. Um, They, they overshot the landing area that they had targeted. And so Armstrong was seeing boulders and, you know, I mean, if, can you imagine get all the way there And then you come down and one of the legs of the lunar lander lands, lands on a boulder and just tips the whole thing over. I mean, oh my gosh, it's just on and on and on and things like that. It was 
boy, those guys, those, those guys had stones, man. Just you, you can't just help but be proud of them. And so, yeah, the fourth, the fourth uh, criterion that you, you touched on was character, but in this list, it's called leadership. And it's not just talking about JFK saying, we will go to the moon in this decade, you know, <laughs> in his famous mispronunciation of the word decade. Um, it isn't just Kennedy, it's all of them. It was all of them that just said, yeah, we're doing this. this. This isn't even a question, we're doing this. And they did it. And that's what people lack today, I think. Uh, there was something about, um, was it Trump said, we wanna go back to the moon by 2024? Are you familiar with this new story? I, no, no. Again, this was, it was the same podcast by this guy who um, he, he has questions about the the lunar lander. He doesn't say it never happened, but uh, when they they announced it was going to be like five years out, he said, "Oh, does it really take that long to find the talent in Hollywood to put together a good green, green screen?" So uh. now it's it's they made some initiative saying that they wanted to to go back to the moon in five years. I don't know if anything's going to come of that or not. If if anybody did it in five years, it would be one of the private outfits. I'm afraid. Um, Probably Jeff Bezos. Yeah, or who, who's the other guy? The guy who's um, landing the um, reusable booster rockets. Oh, Elon um, Musk. Yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah, but I, I don't think they're worried about trying to go interstellar at this point, or, or between the planets, or even to the moon. Um, Bezos is the one who wants to go to Mars. He 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 does not want to end his life on Earth. He want he wants to be part of the initial uh, Mars colony, and if that means building and paying for all the, all the um, the transport for it, that's what he's going to do. Now. It's going to be interesting to see if he can pull it off. I think um, Elon is just more interested in, in um, finding a commercial way to launch things, and he, they yeah. pulled it off. And and the whole landing the rockets again, and the, or the boosters, it was just the, the economy of scale. NASA mm-hmm. can throw millions and billions of dollars at this and, and uh, get their piggy bank refilled when they run out of money. But if you're trying to do this for a profit, you got to figure out how to economize. So one of the suggestions that one of the engineers had was shave 90% of the weight of the, of the booster and or reuse it. And they came up with a, a combination of the two. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't quite the same uh, weight savings, but they, they figured if they could nail being able to recover the boosters, then it would become profitable much faster. And they lost, I forget, the first six tries or 20 tries. Uh, they mm-hmm. they didn't, didn't recover the boosters very well. Or, well, they didn't at all. They, they would either flat out crash land without slowing down properly or they would they would touch down but then not stabilize just fall over and of course they, mm-hmm. have to, they have to auto destruct before they fall over but they got them to the point now it's like clockwork those things land in in unison when they when they do the um is it the falcon 9 heavy it's it's got the, mm-hmm. the three massive boosters those two side boosters land side by side uh, yeah. they're probably about 300 meters apart or so but they land on, on adjacent um pads almost in perfect unison it's yeah it's freaky to watch this realize I mean, it looks like a video game it it's so perfect in the timing and and the the trajectories it doesn't look real and yeah and of course that's that's what really advanced um autopilots will be able to do and that's the other thing too the the um the center booster they, they recover that on a drone ship out at sea so all this yeah. unmanned magic uh why do we even need humans in, in, involved anymore with this stuff Yep, that's that's kind of where I am. But then, yeah, now as you said, there it's getting to the point where we've got all these people who are basically suicidal in a in a certain sense. It's a form of suicide. If you go to Mars, you're never coming back. So 
it's it's kind of an understood, long drawn out uh, form of suicide. It seems to me, and it's there, you know, talking about that we're destroying the earth, and and there's not going to be anything left, and uh, <laughs> these people, they they get, it's it's really it is a it is absolutely 100% a false religion and they are every bit as delusional and nuts as you know the musloids who are blowing themselves up are and you know hindus who light themselves on fire and buddhist monks who light themselves on fire it's that same level of absolute insanity that goes along with having a um, a fanaticism within a false religion. Um, and that's, that's what this all is. And it's, it's sad and it's scary to watch. And they, they, I don't know if they honestly believe it. I think, I think probably a lot of them do. They honestly believe that the earth is being, is being destroyed. And it's, it's absolutely no such thing. No such thing as that is happening. This is, you know, it's the middle of July and it's hot and people are saying, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, even before this all took off back 20 years ago, when I was working, you know, as a commodity broker and so forth, you know, you've got, you've got drought. There's, there's drought somewhere in the continental United States every year. Somebody's dry. That's just, that's just how it is, man. It's just cyclical and somebody's going to be a dry patch and somebody's going to be a wet patch. And of course, you know, you've got this media and you've got, you know, shady commodity brokers and traders who are trying to get people excited and get them to trade and things like this. And, um, you know, I was just constantly having having to tell people, you know, this is basically running on about roughly plus or minus about a 10 year about a 10 year cycle. You know, we had we had catastrophic flooding in in Kansas in 1993. And then you just you just wait five, six years or so and you're going to have you're going to have a drought because with meteorology, it's all about the law of averages. There's extremes on the high end. There's extremes on the low end. And guess what? They cancel each other out and the median stays, the long-term median stays almost perfect on trend. And it's, you just have to keep reminding people who are falling for this, this is the end of the world. It's never going to rain again in Kansas. And I, you, you realize that three years from today, you're going to be, you're going to be crying on my shoulder because it's so muddy, Right. You, you realize and you remember that that's how your entire life has been. That's how your father's entire life has been. That's how your grandfather's entire life was. And that's how your great-grandfather's entire life was. You go from believing it's never going to rain again to this rain is never, ever going to stop and this mud is never going to go away. And you just keep oscillating on about a 10-year back and forth between those two extremes. And just nobody they, they they just aren't able to step back away from it never able to step back away from it and so i think it's the same thing with now these people like bezos and stuff that they they're so far gone and it's far more severe but i think a lot of them actually do believe that you know at some point i don't know the earth is going to stop spinning the sun's not going to rise and there aren't going to be seasons anymore i don't even know what these people think when in fact there's pretty much nothing wrong. Now the Chinese are kind of a bunch of polluting bastards and something needs to be done about that. And, you know, 
yeah, we shouldn't be dumping horrific, you know, chemical byproducts out of factories into into rivers and and things like that. Of course, common sense. But in terms of this whole this whole absolutely satanic notion that human beings are destroying the earth, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The system is so big that there's nothing that we could possibly do to even to even dent it, it seems to me. And there are so many factors external to us that are so much stronger than us. Like, you know, for example, let me think if I can think of something just off the top of my head. Oh, I don't know. How about the eight trillion quadrillion ton fusion gas fireball in the sky? Uh, and and how that phases and cycles and sunspots and solar minimums and solar maximums not do you think maybe the sun which we have no control over and cannot affect in any way do you think maybe that affects the weather a little bit uh but that doesn't matter because you know too too many cows are farting or something like that and we're destroying the planet it's, it's just a it's a mass insanity it's a mass um diabolical disorientation and delusion certainly a lot of hot air all the way around but at least mm. in the in the case of elon musk and jeff bezos they are literally shooting for the stars they they are wanting to you know be space pioneers and astronauts as opposed to a story that I sent you the link to this, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes uh, from Ars Technica, American kids would rather be YouTubers than astronauts. How's that for yes. setting the bar pretty low? Yep, yep. I mean, kids don't uh, kids don't play. Um, we've talked about this. It's just, it's incredibly sad. You you see kids, and you know, right now I'm seeing quite a bit quite a bit more children. Of course, during the summer there are children around and people going on vacation and and so on and so forth. And it seems like every kid I see is holding a smartphone and is just absolutely is sitting there. And you can tell, you can tell by the way the kid is moving his thumb that he's playing, um, he's playing a video game. He's playing one of these games on the phone and they're just, they're not interested. They are not interested in anything that that's going on around them anything that they can you know see look at nothing it's just it's just put give me that phone and let me play my video game and that's it so no none of them none of them want to be astronauts none of them have any ambition to do anything and it's as we've talked about before the the culture that's the most far gone in this regard and is at the, the tip of the spear so to speak is japan and J the japanese are seeing this that people these this young generation of japanese are so utterly disinterested in anything in the real world and are so fixated on online gaming um anime things like that that they they literally are becoming asexual and they don't even have any sexual desire which is and believe it or not and we've talked about this that is the ultimate perversion when a person is just so far gone that they just aren't even interested in any sort of relationship getting married having children that there isn't there isn't even any just baseline libido or sexual desire it's just gone that is actually asexuality is the ultimate perversion believe it or not and that's clearly where american culture is heading clearly without any doubt Partly that could be explained by a lack of ambition and video games and 
all the other things that we see in American culture, but I've also heard it explained that in the case of the Japanese, they don't see it as being an achievable financial goal to to be able to buy someplace big enough to raise a family so they don't even bother. At least they are... Okay, so I see your, your point that it's a, it's a bigger perversion than anything else, but... I'm kind of scratching my head and saying, well, isn't it less of a an evil than, you know, just having promiscuous sex and, and then um, and then having abortions? No, I think, and believe it or not, then the first time I heard this and read this in Thomas, I was I was a little bit taken aback and I went back and read it again to make sure that that I was correct and I was reading it correctly. Thomas, Tom, Thomas argues that, for example, fornication is is people grasping at a good. Now, you know, being married, the conjugal embrace, reproduction, that that is an intrinsic good. And fornication is is grasping at something that's good in a completely inappropriate context in a completely inappropriate way. Um, and so Thomas actually makes the argument that that self-abuse, it, and this this feeds into the Japanese thing because he are, Thomas argues that self abuse can and oftentimes is worse than fornication because at least two people who are fornicating are are trying to emulate the goods of marriage, whereas self abuse is just a completely narcissistic. Um, it's just no damn good. And, we, and you know, before the advent of online pornography and all of this, I think people would have a harder time understanding it. But I think today it's a lot easier to understand. And you can you can see what Thomas is saying, that if you just if you enter into this world of just abusing yourself and most people who abuse themselves are, of course, you know, using pornography in some way um, that you just descend into this monstrous existence of narcissism and completely shutting yourself off from other human beings and eventually from the rest of the world. And then eventually you turn into, you know, the Japanese youth and you just, you sit, you sit in a room, you lock yourself in a room and you play video games 18, 20 hours a day. And that's, that's your life and you have no ambition and you don't want to do anything and you don't want a girlfriend. And if, if you ever had any inclination to have a girlfriend, it would only be a robot girlfriend or something. I mean, and that's where all of this is going, but it's even the loss of libido. That's so creepy. It sounds almost like bulimia of the reproductive drive or the reproductive, ah. re- reproductive appetite. Interesting. Well said. Yeah. Well, no, I was just thinking of it in terms of, a, of it being an appetite and it's like, there is a a disease there where you just decide not to eat, and it seems to. Well, be that's anorexia. Anorexia is deciding not to eat. Bulimia is when you binge and then throw it all back up. Okay, I got the wrong word, and somewhere between the two, though. I mean, it, the the whole point of intentionally denying a, a reasonable appetite. If you, if you are hungry, you're supposed to eat food. I mean, unless right. you're four hundred pounds, then you probably should change what you're eating so you're um, eating something healthy. But you still have to eat. Yes, you, you do. Yeah. But there are people who will not eat, even even yeah. though they need to. And yep. they, they weigh about 75 pounds and they don't look healthy. No, no. So that's that topic. Um, right. at, at least at least Jeff Bezos is, is shooting for the stars and has some ambition. Um, 
just a couple of other things I want to get through real quick. Uh, a couple of questions. So I, I mentioned on a previous podcast, the image, the birth of the church. I couldn't find it after the podcast, so I didn't put a link in the show notes, and I forgot about it after that, and somebody emailed in and uh, reminded me of this. I sent the note to my PhD friend who told me about this over a decade ago, and, and uh, if I find the image, I will bring it up again on the show notes or send it to Anne, and maybe she'll find it interesting enough to blog about it. But if I, I, I'll, I'll make a note to try to find this, and if and when I find it, I'll tweet it, send it to Anne, and bring it up on the podcast again. But as of right now, I don't, I can't find it. I, I, I've looked. Uh, it, it's it's an image of Christ on the cross, and Christ is coming out as Christ as the victim is on the cross, and Christ as the uh, the church, the mystical body. Well, it's him is exiting the wound in his side. Uh, so it's Christ coming out of the side of Christ. Uh, it sounds kind of weird to, to describe it that way, but the image makes more sense. Mm-hmm. In any case, if I ever find that, I will share that with everyone. Uh, another email, someone busted my chops about having my history incorrect about why the American colonies um, revolted, that the, the they were not taxed for um, making up the expenses of the French and Indian War. Okay, I, I'll freely admit that uh, I need to restudy that point. Um, I came up, came across that reading two or three different audiobooks, and and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to write a report on it at the time. I just kind of filed away interesting tidbits, like, oh, that makes sense now. I mean, what? That's why the the Boston Tea Party, would, would, you know, the the whole thing about taxation, because it was all about. England running into uh, running at massive war debts and have to pay it off somehow, which is kind of relatable at this point in time. How many trillions are, of debt are we running up since uh, 9/11, with just endless wars of of terror against terrorism, uh, wars on on adjectives, whatever. It's it's expensive, and at some point somebody has to pay that all off. So I I will have to go revisit that. A couple other points. Yes, George Washington was an inept general. And uh, Samuel Adams was only good at fomenting revolution. That was Boston in a nutshell. Most of most of the United States, even with um, you know the, the issues of taxation without representation, actually they weren't the United States yet. The American colonies, even with the conditions that were considered intolerable, almost everybody wanted to just remain British citizens. It was only the Bostonians and a very very vocal minority of them who decided this was a, enough of an issue to uh, go to war over. It's kind of like the scene in in, um, in the, the movie Braveheart where the William Wallace character says, I'm going to go pick a fight. In other words, they would have all gone home and not had a, had a battle that day, but he decides, nope, we, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. We're going to go pick a fight and have a, have a war today. So that was that was your Bostonians in the, in the revolution. Well, and if you've, um, speaking of Mel Gibson movies, The Patriot, um, it starts out the whole, the whole plot of The Patriot is that they're not up in New England, but they're down in, I believe, South Carolina. And, um, and Gibson's character just wants nothing to do with the revolution. And he's drug into it by the atrocities and the war crimes of, of, the British in the South, in the Carolina colonies. That's the entire, you know, foundation of, of the movie. So yeah, I think, um, I think that a lot of people, I think over, over the course of history that a hell of a lot of people have gone to war and died in wars that they just either were, were against, but were legally obligated to fight in or, that they were just indifferent, you know, they were just like, you know, shrug, whatever. Okay. The government or whoever says that we're going to go fight a damn war against these and such people. So I guess I got to go. And 
people just didn't ask questions as much about things like that. And it was, I, so I can see how it would be very possible for a very vocal minority of people in and around the Massachusetts colony to um, stoke the whole thing and drag the whole thing forward. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes, I said it. Unfortunately, it's boy, the general, the general judgment is going to be really, really interesting to And when we all learn about these dynamics and, and what could have been and what should have been and <laughs> how it wasn't. And the thing you just have to keep coming back to over and over and over again is the whole damn thing was driven by Freemasons. And we're, we're living right now, the whole free, the, the coming to fruition of the entire Freemasonic plan of which the American revolt is a absolutely key, obviously key component, just an absolute linchpin historically, because now here, here we are the United States of America and we are, the biggest economy ever, the biggest military ever, and we're just driving all of this. We're the and we're the ones who tolerate and allow people like George Soros and all of these arch criminals and bankers and so forth to have this just unspeakable amount of power that they have. And um, it's it all started. It, it really got it really got going with the American Revolt. Well, that, it's interesting. You immediately went to Freemasonry, and that would be from 1717 on. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, going back to 1517 and the Protestant Revolt, sure. the very non-Japanese problem of Henry VIII wanting having a prodigious appetite that he, you know, one woman wasn't enough, and he couldn't he couldn't get his um, uh, annulment, so he decided to make the split there. Obviously, the that that's a huge sin to the faith against the faith to to commit that schism and essentially take England out of the church as a whole, it mm -hmm. stands to reason then that her, her empire would fragment uh, because they're, they're cut off from grace at this point. Yes, there right. are Roman Catholics in the British Empire, but they were not the majority by any means whatsoever. And I was going to make the comment a little bit earlier about um, it being an interesting meditation on the fourth commandment that patriotism falls under the fourth commandment. Obviously, mm -hmm. fourth commandment is honoring your father and your mother, but obedience to do authority is, is the larger idea there. Why, why is it that you're supposed to obey the laws that, the, that are set in the nation? And there are some you know, good Christians, non-Catholics, who, who are very serious about the fact that if, if um, the appointed uh, rulers, you know, allowed by God, have, have put a white sign on the side of the road with a black 55 on it, you should not drive 56 or faster because that's a sin of, of disobedience. Okay. I, I see your point. And I, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> what? I'm not saying I never speed. I'm just saying that, that yes, there, there's that, that goes both directions. The people in charge are supposed to be making reasonable laws. And Aquinas and, and many others have said that an unreasonable law is not a valid law. Well, I would I would take it a step further, and I would say that a 55 mile per hour speed limit is impossible, and an impossible a, a law that is impossible to comply with is no law at all. So that's what I would argue. But I'm a terrible person who drives in excess of the posted speed limit as policy. So if that's out in Western Kansas or on Hayes and things like that, yeah, it ought to be 85. But I'm talking about like you know, uh, urban freeways. There are areas where 55 school zones. I try to keep it under 55 through school zones, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pro 
probably best I'm that you do that. I'm <laughs> joking. Uh, on the topic of Protestants and Freemasons, actually, let's, let's stick to the, yeah, the, the Freemason thing. Um, I'm not going to talk about it here. It's just bookmarking it. If, if, uh, anybody wants to write in, uh, with, with their thoughts and observation, I have, uh, listened to the Dr. Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration. And I want to bring that up for discussion at some point. I had recommended it to you. I don't know if you read it yet. And, uh, wanted to discuss it. I think it's a worthwhile book to read, but I'm not going to give the full book report right now. Um, but definitely Freemasonry and, and, um, he traces things back at least the 1850s and, and a little bit sooner. I mean, it, it really goes all the way back to the beginning of time. It goes back to the garden of Eden. If you want to trace oh, things back, where did it all go wrong? That's where it went wrong is in the garden of Eden. Everything else is just permutations on the story at this point. Yep, exactly. Um, let's see. Oh, one other thing on the, um, Protestant angle, got a, a question by email. Do you have any links to articles about changes of scripture made by Lutheran Luther and his comrades? I would like some more ammo to use on this all important goal of showing Protestants how sola scriptura isn't actually scriptural. Yes. Um, I will do a book plug and this is a, uh, you have to preface this. Um, there is, it's a, it's a three book set and they're basically a fantastic reference set. Um, it's Sola Scriptura, um, Sola Fede, so Faith Alone, Scripture Alone, and then there's one on the Eucharist and they're by Robert Sugenis. And Robert Sugenis is, um, he's not a flat earther, but he's he argues that the Earth is at is at the center of the universe. Heliocentrism. Um, heliocentrism. Uh, well, no geocentrism. No, no geocentrism. That the Earth is at the center of the universe. Now, I don't actually have a problem with that so much because what is the center of a sphere? What is the center of you know, this, sh whatever shape the universe is in, I suppose that one could say that, yes, from this point, you could measure, you could measure this as the center of it, just as you could, you know, declare any point on the surface of the earth to be the center of the sphere. Cer spheres don't have a center. I, su I suspect it's not a perfect analogy, but I suspect that it's something like that, that, yeah, you could absolutely mathematically build a model and address the, the physical universe as having its center here. I really don't have a problem with that. So um, just be aware of that. His other field of interest in publishing is um, geocentrism. But he has these three books, which I strongly recommend as a reference set. And so what you would want to do is you would want to get the, um, the Sola Scriptura, get all three of them, but the Sola Scriptura one would addresses all of that and goes through what he changed in the book of James. And then of course, everything that he pulled out and why he pulled it out and um, what he edited out of the book of Daniel and so on and so forth. So yeah, that's all easily. There's all kinds of stuff that's been written on that, but I would recommend the, the Sugenis books, specifically the Sola Scriptura one to answer that question. Does he go into any of the, the, uh, or cover the uh, Protestant liturgies and how those are defective. No. Okay. Well, that gets into our other topic. 
Huh. Um, you, you Speaking have... of Protestant liturgies, dun, 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 you're so bad. <laughs> I was wondering how long it was going to take you to react that way. You made a blog post um, reacting to some advice online about uh, somebody had made the comment that if you cannot find the traditional Latin mass on Sunday, that you should not go to a new mass to satisfy your Sunday obligation, that you should just avoid it. And I don't agree with the way you worded it. But then again, it's not exactly there's there's got to be some nuance here. You, you cannot, oh, there's, a, you there, cannot, oh, there's an hour of nuance that we could talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you go ahead and recap what you wrote for those who didn't don't read the blog. Well, I mean, my 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 blog post, of course, opens with with scripture and our Lord's words. Um Coming, coming from Psalm, what is it? Psalm sixty-eight. Um, was there no one who would suffer with me? I looked. For, well, let me pull it up and just <laughs> say it correctly because it's worth saying correctly because it's so beautiful. And Psalm sixty-eight in particular is used in um, Palm Sunday, Tenebrae on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and Holy Week. And it's used in the Mass of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So, you know, the Mass of the Sacred Heart in many parishes is said on First Fridays. So you're going to hear this, you know, 12 times or plus or minus 12 times for the 12 months for the 12 First Fridays. And then you're going to hear it Palm Sunday. And if you go to Tenebrae, which you should, because Tenebrae is like the best liturgical thing of the it's the highlight of my liturgical year is tenebrae i never miss it um so let me get down scroll down and pull this up here oh and i'm scrolling through the blog and i'm seeing the um saint michael chaplet don't forget about that that's really awesome so okay uh psalm 68 verses 21 and 22 in thy sight are all they that afflict me my heart hath expected reproach and misery, as I looked for one that would grieve together with me, but there was none, and for one that would comfort, comfort me, and I found none. And they gave me gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Wow. That's, that's our Lord begging us, you know, don't, don't leave. Don't leave me. And it goes back to the, the theme that we talk about all the time, reclaiming this concept from the Protestants, and that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If, you're, if your wife is diagnosed with cancer, you don't run off, you don't leave her, file for civil divorce, and go to the bishop and say that you want an annulment because that's not the person you married. I didn't marry someone with a you know ginormous brain tumor or whatever it is. And look at marriage vows and remember that our relationship with Jesus Christ and his holy church is it's it's all a spousal dynamic and that human man-woman marriage is pointing to the greater reality of Jesus Christ and his holy church. What are the marriage vows? We all know this for better or for worse in sickness and in health. That, that means something. And so my position is, is no, you, if it gets to the point, um, if you, if you right now are absolutely trapped 
by where you live. And there's just no possible way for you to get to an old mass, even on Sundays. And it's it's getting better. There are more and more all the time. But I, I fully understand that there are still people who for whom it's just still way too far away. But I have to, I, as an aside, I do uh, kind of scoff when people send an email and say, well, it's on the other side of town or it's 90 minutes away. 90 minutes? Are you kidding me? That's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. I'll tell this anecdote quickly again because it's so powerful. The Nova Sordo was the first weekend, the first Sunday in which the Nova Sordo was mandatorily imposed upon the church was um, the first week of the first Sunday of Advent of 1969. So December of 1969. There was a family that lived east east and south of Colorado Springs, so kind of down around either Lamar or La Junta, somewhere down in there. I don't know exactly where, but down in, in southeast Colorado. And, you know, devout Catholics and a bunch of kids and all this. And the, the father and the mother, but the father took one look at this Novus Ordo and said, nope, we are not doing this. We are not participating in this. And he caught wind that there was this old priest in Rapid City, South Dakota, who was a kind of an old curmudgeon. And this old priest said exactly the same thing. You know, the bishop tells him, okay, you have to start saying this new mass. And this, this old codger, <laughs> father codger, said, no, I'm just not going to do it. And, you know, he was an old guy and they just kind of said, well, we're not, we're not going to twist his arm or anything. And he's old and he'll be dead soon anyway, except he wasn't. He lived quite a long time. And so this family, southeast of Colorado Springs, would every Sunday, every Saturday morning, they would get up they would pack into their car or cars. I don't know if it was a big enough family. They might have had to take two cars. I don't know. But anyway, they packed into, into their vehicle or vehicles, and they drove 10 hours all the way up to Rapid City, South Dakota. They would get into Rapid City and stay with a family there overnight. They would get up. They would go to Mass on Sunday morning, and then they would immediately get back in the car and drive home. And this went on for years until a, like, I think it was an SSPX mass started up like somewhere in Northeast Colorado or East of Denver or something like that. And so then their, their commute was reduced from 10 hours to something like, I don't know, three hours each way. And then, you know, that went on until there was an old mass in Colorado Springs or whatever. So what you realize is that for years, Years and years and years, this man, this his wife, there, all these kids, this entire family, what they sacrificed was their weekends. These people had no weekends. Think about that. They were in in the car driving all day Saturday, and then in the car driving all day Sunday. There was no weekend time for them at all. For years, they did this. So, you know, when I get these emails from people saying, oh, it's on the other side of town, it's too far, I'm just like, no, nope, sorry, sorry. I, th I think three hours each way is totally doable. I think that's totally doable. You say, well, Anne, you're a single woman and this is, yeah, I am. I, I am. But, 
you know, I think it's something that could potentially be done. And I think it's something that people need to start thinking about long and hard. What are you going to do? What are you going to do after this Amazon Senate or whatever happens, happens, and they're coming for us. You need to start thinking right now about what it is that you're going to do. And if it is the case, and there are people who do live in places where it's it's just impossible. There's nowhere to go. I, I looked up and I I thought the and what would be an example of this? And the example that came to mind was well, maybe Guam. Maybe there's not an old mass on Guam. But then I looked it up and sure enough, there is. There's some friary on Guam where somebody says the old mass on Sunday. Um, so then I had to keep looking and, you know, I, I don't know, some some island in the Caribbean. Um Bermuda, Jamaica, something like that. Yeah, okay, there's no old mass. What are you going to do? You have to start thinking about this and start having a game plan. And, you know, the impetus of all of this is that there's one of these Catholic thought leaders who who doesn't like going to mass. And I know this because this person told me this numerous times to my face. It's it's absolutely 100% rock solid known and understood. This person does not like going to mass, period, old mass. I mean, any mass. And so they're gunning for an excuse to be able to blow off the third commandment and not just blow off the third commandment, but then hold it up as being some sort of a sign of, of virtue. You know, I don't go to that. I'm, I'm, it's 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 absolutely infuriating it's infuriating that people are being led astray by this do not abandon our lord don't abandon him now you go ahead and make your point go ahead i was gonna say if the point was to get out of going to mass altogether and not to actually keep the day holy that's different than just saying uh don't go to a new mass if you don't have a traditional mass around that that's one is an excuse to avoid mass altogether. One is saying, keep it holy and also protect your faith from possible scandal because you're never allowed to put yourself in the occasion of diminishing your faith. My argument is, and to, you know, people who are reading trad Catholic websites and blogs and commentary and so forth, the vast majority of our listeners out there, they know what the situation is. They they know exactly about the infiltration. They know what's going on. So, and they know how, they know that the Novus Ordo is intrinsically defective, that it was conceived in malice by these infiltrators, specifically to um, take advantage of the severely reduced catechism and spirit of incommunication that had, had infected specifically West, Western Christendom. So it was ripe for the attack. So that, yes, you have these people go. And because these people who were, and this is, this is really interesting because not too terribly long ago, maybe about six weeks ago, um, Father Z on his blog, somebody found some, um, some old videos from First Communion in 1947 and 1950 in Hayes, Kansas, kind of my old stomping grounds. Um, and Father Z posted these videos and it shows, you know, Hayes, Kansas was, I don't know how many people were in Hayes in, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, maybe 25,000, maybe. 
I might, I might be over exaggerating. I don't think it would be much more than that though. So they show this, so they've got these films that, that some, obviously some family member, some guy has taken of this first Holy communion in Hayes, Kansas in 1947. And of course the kids are just, I mean, just gorgeous. Every little girl in a gorgeous, gorgeous white dress with veil and gloves, every little boy in a white suit, you know, and there, every little boy has a crew cut and every little girl has beautiful long hair. And it's just, you look at this and you think, oh my goodness. And then there's, there's film footage of the actual, of the mass and of these kids processing up. And I mean, you, you don't see, you don't see precision in, in the sanctuary except in in just a couple of spots in the world. I mean, you know, I, I would assume that the Institute of Christ the King, when they do their stuff over over in Italy and they do their big liturgies, that they're, you know, they're super rehearsed and you can see videos of all of that online and everything, that those guys are super rehearsed. And then, you know, your your London oratory is going to have really highly rehearsed where everybody knows exactly what they're doing. There's this military precision. You've got these seven-year-old kids that are pulling off gorgeous military precision in the sanctuary receiving First Holy Communion. You think, oh, look at that. Look at how fantastic that is. And then you stop and think about it and you say, wait a minute. This is 1947. So these kids are born in 1940, which means when the Novus Ordo Mass was promulgated in December of 1969, that those, those kids right there who look so perfect and and you are just thinking they must be so well educated and so well catechized and so holy those are the kids that were almost 30 years old when the novus ordo was promulgated and those kids either for all intents and purposes painting with broad strokes here but for all intents and purposes those kids either apostatized or sat and said absolutely nothing when the Novus Ordo was promulgated, said not a word. And I've, you know, I receive emails, emails from these people from that generation all the time. Say the, when the new mass came out, I, I went, I went two weeks and I just said, this isn't, this isn't the Catholic church anymore. And so they quit going. And then they lived lives of, you know, contraception. Not, not that the mass goers weren't contracepting too, but the ones that apostatized were just like, no, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna contra we're gonna contracept. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get divorced and remarried as often as I need to. Um, I'm not gonna raise my kids in the faith. No. So those kids were not as well catechized as you would think. They had the superficial appearance of being catechized, but when when it came time, they were the ones, they were 30 years old, plus or minus. They should have been just for, forgive the expression, but it's kind of it's kind of relevant given the fact that it's it's uh, anti Pope Bergoglio's motto. They should have been raising hell. They should have been absolutely raising hell and they said absolutely nothing. And so, you know, that's that would have been the appropriate time to bar the door of the church and nail 95 protests to the door. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's start with tambourine, guitar, bongos, and then, you know, the altar girls didn't come for quite some time. But, you know, 
we can sit and look back at that and say, they they didn't do anything, they didn't say anything, but at the same time, now the argument is being made that we're not allowed to do anything and we're not allowed to say anything and you have to submit to this authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But back to the, the core question of what we're talking about, if it gets to the point that there is just absolutely nothing you can do to get to an old mass, does that mean that you stop going to mass? Knowing and understanding everything that that we discuss on this podcast, which the vast majority of the listenership does, do you then say, oh no, I'm not going, even though our Lord specifically asked, and I looked for one that would grieve together with me, but there was none, and for one that would comfort me, and I found none. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the Novus Ordo Mass is valid? Th th this is a question that needs to be answered. It, do you believe that or do you not? And if you believe that it is not, that opens up an entire massive can of worms. Um, and and I, I, you know my position, it's valid. Our Lord comes down and the universe, the, the, uh, the Eucharist is confected. It's wildly illicit but it's valid. He's there. And if he's there, then what that means is Our Lady is there. The entire church triumphant is there. It, all this crap is going on. I mean, do, do, are we really going to argue that the listenership, that you and I super nerd, that the listenership, that if we go to a Novus Ordo Mass, that we are going to start doubting the real presence, that we are going to doubt the divinity of Christ, of course not. We understand the infiltration. In fact, when you understand the infiltration, it becomes in and of itself a proof set because why would Satan be attacking the one holy Catholic and apostolic church if it wasn't the real thing? Why would he be doing that? You notice that Satan doesn't care too terribly much about, about what the Presbyterians are doing because the Presbyterians have already, have already disqualified them. They're already out. They're already in schism, so they're already out. Um, he's just trying to drive more and more people into schism. I'm begging you, while you've got the real presence and while you have the holy sacrifice, you've got to go. Don't abandon our Lord. Don't just leave him there. So now I'll let you talk because I know you want to rebut this. Well, the, the larger principle here is to, you, you can never do anything to put your faith in danger. And it was a non-SSPX priest who, who told me under no uncertain terms, you may not go to a new mass. Because I was, I was uh, suggesting that maybe I should go figure out what, what's going on in these new masses just in case. I said, no, you, you would lose your faith. And, and this is something— uh, that's, that's horrible. That, that, why would you lose your faith? You understand you've been catechized and you know there's been an infiltration. Why in the world would—I mean, think about that. You go, you see this horrible thing, you see all this illicity, you see this faggot priest and all of this horrible music and chicks in on, on the altar serving and half-naked women and all of this, and you understand that this is all a function of the infiltration of the church by Freemasons, communists, and sodomites. Why? I, I don't understand this. So this. And this is the crux of the, of the question, I think, really. Why would you lose your faith? I don't get it. Again, like I've said a couple of times on the podcast, I've been to two and a half new masses in my entire life. 
Mm -hmm. One, I was seven. It was my grandma's funeral. I don't really remember anything about that. Mm -hmm. One, I was a photographer for a wedding and that thing went by so fast. I actually was surprised. Like, wait, what did, did we actually have mass? I was trying to take pictures. The, the other, the, what I call the half mass, I was uh, with a friend in St. Paul, Minnesota. We were touring the uh, Basilica up there and I didn't even know what they were doing. I just figured they were having some kind of convention or something because they're speaking English in a, in a cathedral. And then I realized they were having a mass. And it wasn't even, you know, they, they weren't doing tambourines and all that garbage. But when I realized what it was, it's like, this is not what the mass is supposed to be. I was like literally on the verge of throwing up and, and was essentially sick for most of the day. Just realizing you just, just profoundly um, depressed. Like that is what the church has turned into. Really? I mean, I've, I've never seen it before. And my friend was saying, it's actually, that was a really good mass yeah, in comparison. Yeah. It's like, okay, I know academically what happens at a new mass. I also know academically what happens when somebody gets gang raped, but that doesn't mean I want to go see it because if I do, I'm probably going to commit homicide for every single person there doing that. What, what about and if I someone, don't, and what, I don't, what about, what about if someone gets nailed to a cross for your sins? You brought that up. Um, yeah, because <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the 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 only analogy here that works, or the only the only rhetorical device here that works. Well, that was the actual uh, sacrifice at Calvary. The the yeah. mass is the the representation of it. Um, only a handful of people historically were had the opportunity to be there, and obviously all the apostles except the one who stayed close to Mary fled, and yep. and uh, you had and the women the women had, were there. Yeah, you know, two or three of them. I, there it wasn't. The even, it wasn't. It wasn't even that many of them. Um, but you had the the um, institutional church at the time there. Yeah, you, you had all the hierarchs there. Yep. And I can't imagine you know the the, the sorrow that that had to rend Our Lady's heart, hearing all the blasphemies being thrown. But at the same time, what is the point of 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 putting yourself in a position to be thrown into a, a, a mix of depression and, and anger to the point of wanting to hit people and things. That's in not, thy that's, sight, that's no in, way to keep a day holy. In thy sight are all they that afflict me. My heart hath expected reproach and misery. And I looked for one that would grieve together with me, but there was none. And for one that would comfort me, and I found none. And they gave me gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And you, you uh, that's you, it. That's you gave it. Gave the example earlier of somebody who was willing to drive ten mile or ten mile, ten hours to go to mass, yep. and it was ten hours each way. I'm curious. You, you said it was a large family. I'm curious if they got any vocations, uh, religious vocations, out of that. I would not be surprised if they did. Ah, oh, that's um, a good question. Yeah, yeah. If and, it, and if, I was going to say, if the situation were something where there was no local traditional Latin mass, it would be okay. Where's the next closest? Uh, the, yeah. I, if I didn't know where it was, and this was a very sudden thing, like all seven Latin masses in the within fifty miles suddenly disappeared, mm -hmm. that you, Sunday would have to be. I'm not going to the local parish. No, and it's not just me. How do I explain to my kids something that is completely alien to what they understand the mass to be? Okay, I, mean, I, I have so my own glad. little rants about you know the 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 altar boys 
ought to be perfectly behaved because when they don't behave and they're looking out in the congregation, I have to question whether or not they believe what's going on up there. But right. I don't actually truly question what if they understand the mass. I really do have to question if the stories that I've heard about the new mass are true. How does anybody seriously say they believe in what's going on? Well, they, they how, do, how do you that's, how that's do you maintain point. your faith in the company of unbelievers? Uh, I don't think that's terribly difficult. Uh, you under you understand the objective reality of what has happened in the church that this was all prophesied by Our Lady that this is Fatima. Fatima is happening. This is it. We were given all centuries of warning that this would happen and now it's happening why I, I again i don't understand why you would lose your faith but I, you brought up kids and this was several people emailed and said what do you what's the deal with the children though we can't take our kids okay fabulous question so children under the age of reason are not held to the sunday obligation so but within that there's two categories there's teeny tiny infants in arms and they are not going to see perceive any of this they're they're if you know you have a tiny baby and you and your husband go to mass on sunday that baby is not seeing anything that's going on has will have no memory of it so there's infants so you can so you can take an infant and the child is not going to be scandalized okay now there's the next level children who are you know they're switched on they're laying down memories they're perceiving things they're seeing things but if they're under the age of reason and the parents have to make this determination but holy mother church uses as a plus or minus baseline age seven and of course you know your own kids if your kids are precocious and they're more switched on than that um, you can you can absolutely drop that that age down, um, but children beneath the age of reason, whatever that is, um, they are not held to the Sunday obligation. Okay, what do you do with kids that are above the age of reason? What I would do, um, and just because thinking about you know my own childhood and what I was like as a kid, and thinking about um, going back to Father Ripperger and his his um, the the spirits of demonic oppression that are generational, um, he says that the first generation, so which would I think it's kind of named the World War One generation, so very end of the nineteenth century and the first. 20, 30 years of the 20th century, their sp spirit of demonic oppression was in communication. They, they didn't talk to their kids. They didn't pass the faith on to their kids. It was all this stiff upper lip, you know, British Protestant crap. And you just, you didn't talk, you didn't emote, you didn't discuss anything. This was the first generation in which there was really this break in terms of passing on the faith to children. And so I think it's obvious that what that is telling us is that we need to communicate more with our children. So depending on how old the kids are, I think what you do is you explain to them, you sit them down and say, look, something really bad has happened in the church over the last 50 years, really the last 100 years, but especially the last 50 years. They, they promulgated this quote unquote new mass and you, and then you explain it to them because they're not stupid and it, this can all be explained. 
then you say, okay, here's what we're going to do here. We're, we're going to go to this and we are going to be in union with our Lord. And we're going to, we're going to pray the rosary and we're going to keep our eyes down and we're just going to be with our Lord. And when, you know, the consecration will happen, et cetera, et cetera. And we're just, we're not going to do the sign of peace. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to kneel the whole time and we're going to pray the rosary in reparation silently. Then when you get home or you're in the car and you're driving the three hours back home or where, no, it won't be three hours because you, you, that's the point. You've gone to a Novus Ordo. But when you're in the car driving home and you get home, what do you do? If the kids saw anything, which they probably would, what do you do? Talk about it. Use it as a point of departure. Use it as a point of departure to say, okay, you saw this happen. Why is that wrong? Here's why it's wrong. Da, 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 da. And that, that can just it turn it into, if it has to be that way, turn it into a teaching moment. And also you're, you enjoin the children to pray for all the people there present. Pray for the priests there present and cultivate charity um, with these people, most of whom are just ignorant, misguided, and even to instill charity in the children for if if the priest is a flaming fag and and if heresy is preached during during the sermon or whatever during the homily, um, you know, instill in the children the need to pray for these people and cultivate that charity, even for these people who are doing these things that are that are so terribly wrong. Um, so that's my advice. If it gets to the point that you that you have to be going to a Novus Ordo Mass and you have kids in this dynamic. That's my advice with kids. Now, I don't have any kids. Super nerd, you have a bunch of kids. So I think you should chime in and say whatever you want to say about that. I'm listening to what you're saying, but at the same time, I'm shaking my head saying absolutely not. I don't know what would happen. And I do... You know, not by accident, I live someplace where there's quite a selection of, of Latin masses. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and if they all suddenly disappeared and it and that it was without warning uh, before Sunday mass, maybe that Sunday, uh, in addition to, you know, praying the rosary and reading the, the mass readings, I'm going to start making a phone call saying, where is the mass? Yeah. Where, where is the real mass? Not this watered down half Lutheran thing. Now, hold hold on. Wait a minute. You say the real mass, but now what you're implying is that the Novus Ordo mass is not a valid mass. And so what that means is that the Eucharist is not confected and that every tabernacle in every church is um, a bread box and nothing more. And that's, that's that not, is, that's not what I said. That's what you, that, that's the way you've, you've taken uh, it. And but you, not, said the re, you said the real mass. Okay. The Latin mass. There you go. I, I am not going to go to the English mass. End of story. Period. All right. Well, that mass it's, in its, I think in its, it's essence I think it's is a rejection of the faith, and I will not go there. So you, you there, but then now you're saying that everyone who goes to the Novus Ordo ever is um, a non-Catholic schismatic. Anybody who was raised the same way I did, I was, uh, it would uh, be a rejection of your faith to do that. Can we? I can't can make, we that. make I can't, that. I can't make that statement for anybody but me. And that but was, it's that an, was my, but it's but it's an objective reality. It's an objective reality whether or not the Novus Ordo mass is valid. It's an objective reality. It's binary. And scandal it's is not, both it's objective not person and subjective. to person. 
So which applies to children. Yeah. But I think with adults, you have a rational intellect. And if you understand what the infiltration is, I think that you have to go to the, to the foot of the cross and see Christ scourged, crucified, um, asphyxiating in shock, um, dying in agony. I think that I think that you have to do that in these dark days. And remember, the, I'm of the opinion that this is this is probably the run up to the end times. I lay, as I've said many times, I lay strong odds that that Bergoglio is the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. Um, so, is it in your best interest, as an adult, especially as an adult who understands what's going on, if they come after us and if there's absolutely nothing else that you can do? that you should not go be with our Lord as he dies on the cross for your sins at a validly confected mass. Something everybody has to think about. I mean, this is, this is the point of this conversation. Everybody needs to start thinking about these things because I suspect strongly that this is going to come to a, this is going to come to some sort of a head this fall with this Amazonian uh, synod crap. Um, th th this is going to, they're, they're saying it, they're saying that they are intending for this Amazonian synod to radically, fundamental, fundamentally, and irreversibly, utterly transform the church. So you need to start, everybody needs to start thinking, have these contingency plans because this is war. This is war. What are you going to do? Um, and then, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention real quick about things that you could do with kids, um, especially the, the, the littler people who are like, let's say from two to seven or two to eight or something like that. Hey man, there's all kinds of live streaming masses that are available and you can, you know, everybody now has a computer and you can HDMI it into your, into your screen and you can have, you can show a mass online. There's some beautiful masses. There's one over in Switzerland that that um, live streams all the time. The parish down in Sarasota, Florida, live streams all the time. And I think there's more and more. You probably know better than I about um, some of the locations where these live streams are happening. Um, and that's that's fantastic for little kids because it keeps it in front of them. It keeps them exposed. And and there it is. But I've been told that that does not fulfill the Sunday obligation um, for an for an able-bodied person who could get to mass, and also to the point that you made about um, a non-SSPX priest telling had told was it you or told someone you know it was told you no it told me and told this, you this was this was all, uh, I had, I had told the my my experience of, of you know the the cathedral up in St Paul Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And my physical reaction to it, and I was saying, do I just need to get used to this and and uh, go expose myself to it so I don't have that reaction? I said absolutely not. So I, but I've got see, I've got people in my email box since I posted that piece, obviously saying that they've been told by non SSPX trad priests that um, the Novus Ordo Mass is valid and suck it up, Buttercup. So, I, you know, you can you can provide one priest over here. I can provide another priest of the same uh, group 
over here. So there's not even consistency in terms of that. I do have one anecdote that I want to tell that I don't believe I've told on the on the podcast before. Um, years ago, I had occasion that I needed to transport um, some vestments and and give them to a, a traditional parish that had agreed to hold them for safekeeping for some people. Um, and, and I handed off these vestments and, you know, was just very quickly chit chatting with the, with the two priests who, who, um, were, were picked these up and received them. And I said, uh, the people, the people who these belong to, they, they specifically wanted me to say to you that several of these vestments are, um, <laughs> extremely, uh, lacking in beauty. They're Novus Ordo vestments and they're very much lacking in beauty and they're very much polyester. And they just, they said that it's, they have them because a, a priest who was incredibly holy that they suspect at some point in the future might have a cause opened. Um, that he wore these vestments to celebrate the holy sacrifice. And this priest, this one priest of a well-known traditional um, priestly group, looked at me and said, the holy sacrifice of the mass was offered in those vestments. And so no matter what, I will treat them with the utmost respect and the dignity that goes along with the fact that they were worn while the holy sacrifice was offered. And this particular priest is actually extremely, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say snooty snobbish, but he has incredibly good liturgical taste. Let's put it that way. Extremely high level liturgical taste. And when he said that to me, I was, I was most edified by that. The holy sacrifice was offered in those vestments. So no matter what, I will treat them with the dignity that goes along with that. And I, th I thought that was very wise. I thought that was a very wise sentiment. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to. It's really hard to. Well, how are we doing on time? Hour and 25. Okay, all right. That's kind of our traditional length. Do you want to... Do you have any, any other points, any other notes that you want to make or... Um, not on these topics. I've got probably enough notes for another, another <laughs> podcast here, but indeed, indeed. <laughs> and we should, and I'm sure that this will generate more conversation and more feedback and more points to be made. So we'll just plan on that because this is, this is an extremely important topic, it seems to me. And it's, it's, it's somewhat urgent, I think, because like I said, I think this, what's the, what's the saying in Latin, modus in fine velocior, um, <laughs> things speed up as they near the end. And I, I think I'm not the only person who has that, that sensation of things speeding up, that everything's just going faster and faster, like you're, like you're in a roller coaster or something and you're, you've crested the hill and now, now you've got this gravity momentum and it's really going. So that's what we're here for. That's why, that's why we're doing this. And just hopefully if, if nothing else, even if you don't agree with me, if, if you're listening to this and you say, man, I'm not, I'm not going to a Novus Ordo. I need to, I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And I need to figure out where the SSPX chapels are and, you know, where the mass is being offered validly. Oh, and the other thing is that you can um, start 
making connections, talking to people, if there are any priests out there who would be willing to become like what they had in England, who would go into private homes and clandestinely and secretly offer the holy sacrifice in as much as they can. Um, things like that. Um, all kinds of pre-preparations. There's, there's just no excuse in the world why any of us should be caught with our pants around our ankles and not at least have some sort of a game plan worked out. Now, remember, war is hell, and you know you need to be you by definition in war. You need to be flexible because things rarely go as you anticipate that they're going to go. But you at least need to have some sort of a plan so you're not just standing there with your jaw agape when Bergoglio, for example, um, attempts to. Um, abrogate Smorm Pontificum or something like that. Or what I could see potentially kind of the worst case scenario is abrogating Smorm Pontificum, um, which of course he's, he has no authority to do that. And um, then trying to um, abrogate and ban the venerable rite of Pius V and then excommunicating the SSPX. I think that would be the one, two, three that, that Satan ultimately is going to go for. And I don't know how, how that's going to play out or when, obviously. But, I mean, come on. You'd, ha you'd have to be just a, do a dodo to not be thinking, okay, this is probably coming. Let's get our ducks in a row and figure out what we're going to do. Let's get. Let's look at. Let's look at not Google, but let's look at uh, Bing Maps or whatever and figure out how far. Where are SSPX chapels? Where are Tradmas chapels? How far is it? How many hours drive would that be? Da 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 da. Is there anything between there? Are we going to need to stop? You know, whatever. Just figure it out and get it done. I don't disagree. So that's the pep talk. And uh, I guess we can do the, the uh, wrap up now. The email address for the podcast, where you can send feedback, comment, suggestions, or any input you have on these topics. The email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Mass is for Anne's benefactors at least. Uh, it's every single day now. And then, yes. of course, once a week for everybody who died the previous week, there is a Requiem Mass. Uh, please pray for these priests. They massively need our prayers. Um, yes. obviously these priests, all priests really, I mean, what, yeah. what are the, what, what, what are the non SSPX priests going to do when they're told you don't get to say the Latin mass anymore? Oh yeah. That's how many guys. of them are going to yeah. obey. Yep. Yep. How many of them are going to obey what they know to be an invalid and illegal order? Yep. Uh, the part, the Barnhart podcast is a production of super nerd media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details, which is what Charles did via PayPal. And that's it. Actually. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything in the mailbox. I haven't gone in over a week, so there probably is, but, um, we'll talk about that next time. And of course this is, I have no idea when this, this, this one's actually being, um, released. And now that I think about it, I shouldn't have necessarily even done this section because, uh, while we are recording on the Feast of St. Vincent de Paul, which is uh, July 19th for everyone who doesn't have that memorized, I have no idea when this is actually going to publish. Uh, it, the, the intention is that what's going to record tomorrow will go out next to the podcast stream, and this will be on hand in case we need it. Um, so, um, yes, thank you, Charles. And I'll have, <laughs> I'll have a proper list with proper research done for uh, the next regular episode. Um, and, and, yes, I, I, I am... Um, I, I'm. <laughs> I'm definitely 
not energetic after that conversation. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what would I do if, if the Latin mass were gone and it's not a pretty sight. So I usually, yeah. I've, I've got a little more pep in my voice at this part of the podcast, but honestly, it's like, yeah, we can hear it. We can be, hear that you're be, sad it's because be a it's, dark, a, it's going to be a dark time. I don't, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know what I'm not going to do. It's scary, but war is telling. We have to face it. We have to think about the Japanese they hung on for what 200 years from the killing of the last Jesuit until until the next group showed up, and they um, they they got by on the rosary. Is that not? Am I re- remembering that correctly? That I think sounds we, reasonable, and yeah. and um, multiple Marian apparitions have said, I think Fatima for sure, rosary and scapular, and it just follow the example of the apostles. If you want to make it, stay close to Mary. Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, on that not-so-happy note, but necessary. Yep. Until next time, I am Super Nerd, and hopefully I'll be a little more excited next time. (laughs) And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless.